The Holy Gospel for this day comes from Matthew chapter 22. Once more Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding banquet, but they would not come. Again, he sent other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Look, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they made light of it and went away, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore into the main streets and invite everyone you find to the wedding banquet. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing a wedding robe, and he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding robe? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Dear friends in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Creator and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Holy wisdom, holy word. Holy word is one way to respond to that parable. It is the green eggs and ham of parables. I do not like it in a boat. I do not like it with a goat. I do not like it here or there. I do not like it anywhere. But then I'm pretty sure that Jesus never stopped before telling a parable to worry about whether people would like it. Parables are not meant to be liked. They are meant to provoke, to inspire, to challenge, to bother, and even to haunt us a little bit. And by those measures, this particular parable is a stunning success. Everything about this story is ridiculous, over the top. The king has one son, and presumably the son will have one wedding, so we are prepared to expect that this banquet is going to be a humdinger. The king spares no expense, even sending his slaves out into the streets to remind the people who have already been invited that it's time to show up. Those guests respond in a completely ridiculous way. Who among us would beat up the mailman for bringing a wedding invitation? Who would gang up on the messengers who have been sent to call us to the best party of the year, mistreat them, run them off, and kill the ones who were too slow to run? What kind of king then would send his whole army to destroy an entire town based on a few crabby people who don't want to show up to his son's wedding? And what kind of king would then extend the invitation to this amazing party to the few riffraff left on the streets who survived his murderous rampage? <laughs> this story is utterly unbelievable. None of this stuff happens in real life. And that's important to remember because this story is not real life. It is a parable. 
And parables are not about themselves. They are about something more, something bigger, something else, something even more complex and complicated than the story itself. This story doesn't make any sense at all. So it must be about something more than making sense. We are supposed to do something more with it than make sense of it, explain it, solve it, or fix it. It's helpful to know that, as one preacher puts it, in this parable we are catching a glimpse of a very low point in an intense family feud. That is, from what we can tell, the writer of this gospel, whom we'll call Matthew, and his community, to whom he is writing, are struggling mightily with their fellow Jews. They are all Jewish, and they are struggling about whether Jesus really was the Messiah, and if he was, what they should do about it. This was not a dispute between Jews and Christians because there weren't really any Christians yet at that point. It is a family feud, an internal argument. And one of the things that makes this story dangerous is how Christians have used it over the years to assign parts. Well, God is the king, we say, so the Jews must be the first people who were invited, but they didn't show up correctly, and that makes us the people who really got in, so we win, ha, 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 the end. That is a terribly, terribly unfair reading of this parable. It is true that by this point in the Gospel of Matthew, we are heading into the end of it. Jesus is angry at the religious leaders in his own community because they are more committed to the status quo, as bad as it may be, than to the reform and revolution that Jesus wants to bring. And Matthew's community is still angry and frustrated about that years later when the story is being written down. It's a violent, painful story, in part because it was a violent, painful time. Knowing that doesn't solve the parable, but it does help a bit. And we do have to remember the painful history of misinterpreting this story, of using it to kick people out of the kingdom because they're not worthy of an invitation. If we are tempted to use the story in the same way, we are really missing the point. The story starts off pretty well, actually in a pretty standard fashion. Wedding feasts. Wedding feasts are often used in the Bible to describe God's radical invitation and mercy and joy. Jesus talks about banquets and feasts and parties with fatted calves and water turned into wine. The text from Isaiah today draws that gorgeous picture of a mountain where all the people gather for a big party with well-aged wines and rich food and death swallowed up forever. The burdens we carry wiped away with our tears. By comparison, the party in the parable is a complete catastrophe. Anything that can go wrong does, and in spectacular fashion. Why? Is Jesus trying to scare us into the kingdom? Trying to tell us that one day we won't have another chance to say yes. One day 
We will be called to account for all the ways we have mistreated the messengers, scorned the invitation, convinced ourselves that we can go later when we're not so busy with other important things. Here is where I tell you that I had a very hard time coming up with what to say to you at this point. This is the point of the sermon preview, if you saw it, where I went like this. So, I did some reading, some thinking, some praying, some more reading and listening, and along the way, I came across a sermon given by a pastor, Dr. Angela Hancock, who teaches preaching in Pittsburgh. For me, she was living proof this week that we are not meant to read the Bible by ourselves in a room, try to figure it out all on our own, but we need each other to understand this stuff. People have been trying to grasp this parable for 2,000 years, and Dr. Hancock opened it up for me in some new ways that I would like to share with you. The first is this. In spite of how uncomfortable it makes us, and chances are it is meant to do exactly that, there is a demand in this parable. Jesus says this sort of thing over and over again, sometimes in parables and sometimes just bluntly, flat out. Take up your cross. Follow me. Leave your nets behind. Hate your mother and father. Turn the other cheek. Give away everything you own. Be all in. All the way in. And Jesus will not stop saying this, no matter how often we convince ourselves he cannot possibly be talking to us. The kingdom of God is a wholehearted, whole life kind of thing. It will not settle for simply being nice to people or giving the few extra dollars we happen to have in our pockets or saying things on Facebook, about how much we want justice, but then not actually doing anything about it. Or singing and praying about compassion and humility on Sundays, and then treating people like nuisances the rest of the week. Jesus will not let us off with this. The kingdom of God is about transformation. And transformation means change, and change is hard. No two ways about it. What Angela Hancock says is this, the only difference between the people who got into the banquet and those who didn't was that the ones who got in said yes. That's it. The parable even tells us that they were good and bad. So there's nothing inherently better about them than the first group. They were just willing to walk away from everything else even from good, important, respectable, necessary things, and into the party. They were willing to be all in. That's it. Now, if the story ended there, maybe that would be the meaning of it. Maybe it would be a story about how we too are called to leave things behind. Maybe it would be about how being in the banquet completely changes how you see everything else so that you can put down your old ways. 
You can put down your desire for revenge, your anxious greed, your fear, your cynicism, even your bank account and your portfolio, and walk away because whatever this banquet is like, it puts everything else into perspective. That's hard, very hard. And maybe not a single human being has managed to do it yet, but at least it's understandable. The message is clear. Say yes. The end. Except not. That's not the end of this parable, is it? Oh no, fear not. It gets so much worse. <laughs> Somehow there is one person in the banquet who got in without a robe. How he was supposed to have a robe, given that this was a last-minute invitation, is a mystery left unsolved. But when the king discovers this, he is horrified and has the guest bound, hand and foot, kicked out of the party and left in the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Holy wisdom, holy word. If we could figure out a reason why the mysterious non-robed man deserved what he got, that would help. Maybe he represents people who say yes to the kingdom of God, but don't really transform their whole lives. Maybe he's like the people who say they want to protect Christian values, but then undermine every safety net, every form of support, say cruel things, and treat people like nuisances. Maybe he's one of those hypocrites who goes to worship on Sundays and then gets into a road rage incident while leaving the church parking lot. Surely this guy deserved it though, right? Isn't that how it all works? Can't we find some kind of reason this wedding guest had it coming? Do not like this, Sam, I am. <laughs> we do not like it here or there. We do not like it anywhere. What we like, what we want, is for this terrible, confusing, bizarre parable to make sense. And in order for it to make sense, we need to figure out why everybody in the story deserved what they got. That, after all, is how we make sense of so many other things in the world. About why some people are poor or unemployed. Why some are good students and some are not. Why some people get sick and others don't. Why some people suffer so much more than ever seems fair. If we could just figure out why they deserve it, even if we know we are not supposed to say it out loud, it will make more sense. And as terrible as that sense may be, it is still less terrifying to us than no sense at all.
But what if that guest is there, bound hand and foot, weeping and gnashing his teeth, lost and afraid, precisely to make no sense at all? What if that guest is there to put to death our ideas once and for all about everybody getting what they deserve? Because what if that guest didn't deserve it, but was willing to be cast out, willing to be thrown outside the walls, willing to be stripped and beaten and hung on a cross, willing to die all the way, all the way in, so that you and I would finally have to admit that the way we understand and structure the world doesn't really make sense either. What if many are called, but only one was chosen? Chosen to bear the burden of an unfair system. Chosen to show us how many lies we have trusted to keep us safe. Chosen to be crucified. With all of those who are weeping and gnashing their teeth chosen to be all the way in that tomb for three days and three nights and then robed again, robed in light and joy and resurrection, robed so brightly that his best friends couldn't even recognize him. What if that guest didn't have a robe in the first place because the robe he had, he gave to you? What if this story isn't supposed to make sense? What if it's supposed to make you and I new people, transformed people, people of resurrection and joy, and a profound, unshakable determination to make this world as beautifully unfair as God's kingdom, where all are called, all are loved, and the one who was chosen will lead us in to the best, most ridiculous party we have ever seen. Holy wisdom, holy word, thanks be to God. Amen.